Hey, you're on air with Ella, and I'm very pleased to be bringing you Katherine Hansen today. She authored a book called Brain Over Binge that absolutely changed my life this summer when I read it, and I've been wanting to get her on the show for a while. And that is not hyperbole, by the way. That is actual fact. We'll talk about it soon. But before we jump in with Katherine, I wanted to thank today's sponsor. This is going to sound so cheesy, but Bob's Red Mill came to me at the perfect time in my life to be the very first on-air sponsor for an On Air with Ella show. And the reason why I say that, as ridiculous as it sounds, is that they make all of these goodies that I had cut out of my diet for years things that I really, really like, and I cut them out of my diet, heaven knows why. Different reasons, different sources, different legalizations around food, different food rules, so on and so forth. And so when I tell you that I welcome Bob's Red Mill products back into my life and into my pantry, it's not just talk. I have started making dishes with warm, healthy, fibrous carbohydrates at the base, and it has had a profound effect on my satiation, on my happiness, on my fullness, and just in general, on my ability to eat a meal and feel satisfied. I am loving their quinoa and their couscous and their millet and their amaranth and all of these, for me, gluten-free, vegan, whole food options that are back in my life again. And I'm just genuinely so happy. I love the way the universe works. When I needed this type of nourishment, Bob's Red Mill came knocking on my door. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I think it's a beautiful symmetry. Whether you cook or whether you just assemble meals like I do, Bob's Red Mill has got you covered. Go to bobsredmill.com and shop on their site to save 25% off with code Ella. bobsredmill.com, code Ella for 25% off. So check them out today. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Bob. I appreciate you. Okay, guys, thanks for letting me have my moment. We're going to jump in with Katherine Hansen right now. Here we go. Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts, and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today I'm joined by somebody who I am very, very pleased to welcome to the show. She's made an enormous impact in my life. Katherine Hansen, welcome to the show. Hi Ella, thanks so much for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. I read your book, Brain Over Binge, Catherine, this summer, and it had an absolutely transformative impact on my life. It was really one of those things. I read a lot, Catherine, like a lot. (laughs) And it's very, very, very rare that I chase down the author as hard as I did you. And I say, listen, you absolutely changed my life. And I need to share what you're doing with the rest of the world. And you fall into that category, Catherine, with a very, very, very few other people. So thank you for being here. That's awesome. I'm so glad you found me. And it's very meaningful to hear you say that. I'm so glad I could help be a part of your transformation. You absolutely are. Let's tell people how. Catherine, tell us who you are and what you do. 
Yes, absolutely. I'm an author and I'm also a recovery coach for binge eaters. And that's, I work with people with binge eating disorder and also bulimia. And my goal is really to make recovery from this problem of binge eating very practical. And I try to be an alternative voice in the field of eating disorders. I want to empower women and just give them an alternative perspective on this problem, on binge eating and help give them a practical way to just put it behind them and have freedom because I struggled with it myself. I actually recovered 12 years ago. So ever since then, it's just been my mission to give back and try to help others have the same freedom that I've been able to experience. Yeah, this is what I love about you. And what I love about your work, Catherine, is that you have an approach that is completely different than anything else that I've ever been exposed to. And a couple things that I want to go ahead and get out on the table. Today, we're going to talk about this in a way that honestly, even if you don't suffer from a binge eating disorder, or any really even sort of overwhelming consuming food habit, any habit that feels like it is controlling you, anything in your life that feels like it has dominion over you, if you can have that in mind as we have this conversation, I think you're going to benefit from this uh, just without question. Because what Catherine does is she talks about habits. She talks about the brain. She talks about the role that they play in, in this case, binge eating. And Catherine, would you agree that really, though, these principles are universal? Yes, absolutely. And in my work, I really focus on binge eating. But yes, it can apply to any habit. And just learning about the brain and how it works to drive our destructive habits is so powerful. And it can really allow you to move beyond any harmful behavior that you're struggling with. Well, I want to share something that you said. I think it paints a nice picture sort of of where you come from and what you're about. You said, I aim to be an alternative voice in the field of eating disorders, teaching brain-based reasons for why binge eating occurs and departing from mainstream ideas that say eating disorders are the result of underlying emotional and psychological problems and require years of therapy to fix. I am so going to deep dive into that with you, <laughs> Catherine, today. I can't wait to talk about it. Great. But first, I think it'd be so useful to share with everybody kind of your backstory and where you came from, because a lot of people, Catherine, they still misuse the term binge eating. And they're like, oh, I had three cookies last night. I totally binged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And then there's a group of people who have really really ridden that binge train into very dark places. And your story was so dramatic, honestly, but also so very relatable. And I'd like to share a little bit of that with everybody today. Catherine, can you kind of talk about the beginning of this story for you? Like what sort of was the turning point for you from what I call a normal eater in quotes to somebody who started uh, binging as a habit? Yeah, absolutely. And my eating disorder started when I was very young. And that's definitely the case for so many other women mm -hmm. who and men who struggle with this. I was about 15 when I started dieting. And, you know, dieting is so common. The percentages of young girls who diet is just, it's crazy. And I kind of fell into that kind of inadvertently. All of my friends were doing it. It just something that kind of happened. It happens to plenty of other women as well. But dieting just really for me and for so many others, it had very harmful consequences. As I restricted my food intake, my cravings increased. I suddenly wanted to eat more than I ever wanted to eat in my life. I just felt so consumed by food. And as sort of the obsession with food increased, I tried to control it even more. I tried to cut back even more to try to control my appetite and to try to 
set more rigid rules for myself and more diet mentality. But eventually, after about almost two years of that dieting mentality, I snapped into binge eating. And it happened, it was just one day that I just ate and ate and ate and I felt so out of control and I'd never done anything like that before. And it was so unsettling. You know, everyone overeats from time to time, like you mentioned mm-hmm. with the three cookies. I mean, it happens. It's it's fine. That had happened to me before this day that I binged for the first time. But the binge was such a different behavior. It was like almost an out-of-body experience. Just it felt so out of control. And afterward, I was like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? And then I was determined to get back on my diet and, you know, exercise extra to make up for it. And and then it happened again, you know, maybe a week later. And then it started happening more and more when I would just have these episodes where I felt completely consumed by this desire and drive to eat. And it wasn't just normal overeating. This was massive amounts of food, thousands and thousands of calories. I mean, my binges were probably between eight and 10,000 calories. And that's pretty common. Sometimes people binge on less. Sometimes people binge on more. And the habit just increased. It just kept going. And then I went off to college and I was still doing it, you know, probably doing it maybe three, four times a week, feeling completely out of control. So it was really a dark time. It was a time that I didn't want to be doing this. I knew fundamentally this wasn't me who wanted to be doing this, but I felt so driven and so out of control. And I think that people who don't experience that urge or that drive to binge, it's really hard for them to understand it. But anyone who has experienced it, it's just kind of an unmistakable mindset and feeling. And it leads to so much shame and so much guilt. And it really ruined a lot of my college years because I spent it either binging or over-exercising to try to compensate for the binge or just in a place of shame and guilt and just not feeling like myself. It just consumed me. Yeah, there's so much here that I want to unpack. But one of the things that was very prevalent in your book was you were a runner and a gifted runner at that, right? Yeah, definitely. I did division one track and cross country. It definitely interfered with that for sure. I ended up having to quit the team after two years because I had too many injuries and my health was suffering and it just, it didn't turn out well for me. But yeah, definitely. And it is common for female athletes and male athletes as well to start trying to control their food intake and then slip into binge eating or bulimia. So it's definitely a common issue among athletes. Yeah. In retrospect, when you read your book, you realize that it was the deprivation that created the binging in the first place. But of course, when you're in it, you don't know that because it's just such a slippery slope, right? Like I just need to cut a few pounds or whatever our mental state is at that point. It's such a slippery slope. You're not like, I'm going to deprive myself. And then the pendulum will necessarily swing back again. And I will begin a binging habit. Like we don't see it when we're in it. And one thing that I thought that was very compelling about your story is you describe what it felt like to have almost something else take over you. And you are probably to the outside world, a completely normal college student. And it's like some other part of you is driving your car to the convenience store, to the grocery store to buy food that you know you're going to binge on. Can you take us back to that time and sort of share what that was like for you? Yeah, it definitely felt like two different me's, I guess, for a lack of better way to explain it. Part of me was a successful runner and I was successful in school and I had friends. And another part of me was driving to gas stations in the middle of the night and consuming massive amounts of food. So yeah, it felt like I was living not quite authentically because there was this big secret that I was hiding. And 
eventually, I think it started, definitely started to show on my body. In the beginning, I was able to kind of keep my weight in a normal range. But as the years went by, I struggled with binge eating for six years. I ended up gaining a lot of weight. So then it was, is more evident, which also created a lot of shame as well. Can you share the story about the wrapper in the drawer? Because this is such a metaphor. I also think people who might over drink, that might be their coping mechanism. I think that they can also relate to this hard. But share what the wrapper in the drawer meant to you. Yeah, absolutely. When I would come out of a binge, it was almost like my true self would return. I would feel like me again. And I would realize, wow, what did I do? And then I would resolve never to do it again. So I would save the wrapper of like the last thing I ate during a binge and save it as sort of a memento. Like this is a symbol that I'll never do it again. This was the last time. And I would put it in the drawer. And then I was in the book. I shared that I replaced that wrapper so many times during the course of my binge eating because none of my resolutions ever stuck because I wasn't approaching the problem in a way that worked for me. And I'm sure we'll get into that later. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the things you did try when you knew you needed to exorcise this out of your life, exorcise, not exercise. (laughs) When you knew you needed to carve this out of your life, Catherine, what are some of the various things that you tried? Because you tried a lot. I did try a lot. And I know if any of you are listening and struggle with this, you've probably tried a lot as well. And it can be frustrating to try so hard to recover and it just not happen for you. And I went through that for a lot of years. I started therapy when I got to college, basically. I realized I felt completely out of control, Mm -hmm. and I knew that somehow I wasn't able to get a handle on it myself. No matter how many resolutions I set, I still found myself driving to the gas station again or, you know, eating all the food in my dorm room. So I sought therapy, which, you know, is the right thing to do. But the way that therapy approached eating disorders then and even now today just wasn't the right philosophy for me. Now, When I say this, I don't want to say it's useless. I don't want to say that it doesn't work for anyone. It's just that it wasn't a practical approach. It was not an empowering approach. And I actually feel like it prolonged my eating disorder and Mm. it prolonged the binging longer than it really needed to go on. So I'll explain a little bit about how it was treated and how my eating disorder was approached in therapy. And it wasn't just one therapist. It was collectively a few therapists over the years, some nutritionists medical doctors, you know, just generally how I learned to view my eating disorder was that it wasn't about food, that it was a coping mechanism, that it was something that I did because I couldn't face my problems in life or I couldn't deal with sadness or depression or anxiety or the stress of being away at college. It was a way that I was calming myself or medicating myself. Or also I learned that it was a disease, that it was something that I was flawed. I was broken. There was something in my past that had happened that made me like this. It was just a lot of complications. A lot of something is wrong with you. Something is very wrong. That's a big message that I got over the years. So because of that philosophy, because of that general view that you're diseased, something is wrong with you, you can't face your problems, the goal of therapy then became to learn how to face my problems, to solve depression, to solve anxiety, to learn how to cope better with my day-to-day life, to learn to manage stress, to go back to my past, to figure out what might have happened that led to this. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of digging for root causes and also trying to solve these underlying issues. So it was all very complicated and it just never really worked for me personally. 
And I feel like when you start peeling back those layers, you just find more and more and more layers. So I find a lot of people can sort of get stuck in the quote, trying to figure out what's actually wrong with them, you know, phase of this. Yeah, I definitely get stuck there for a long time. And, you know, everyone can find problems in their life. Everyone can find issues in their past. Everyone can find stress in their day-to-day life. And to blame the binging on that, I just don't think it was necessary. I don't. And I think the binging, as you heard me tell my story in the beginning, it started from the diet. It started from that restriction. You know, I was a normal kid. I mean, everyone has problems. I was probably more prone to perfectionism and anxiety and stuff as a kid, but everyone's prone to something, you know? So the dieting is what set in motion the binge eating. And when I got to therapy, that wasn't what was told to me. It was told to me that that day that I binged for the first time, it was because something was wrong. Something underlying was emotionally broken about me or was, you know, it was not told to me that, hey, you're normal, you're okay, you're fundamentally healthy, but your deprived brain drove you to eat all this food and then it became a habit. So approaching it from a more practical perspective, I think would have been very helpful. But unfortunately, I didn't find that practical perspective until years later. I think this is really, really important. And I think you said it really well. Let me share this with the audience. So You said, I do not believe bulimia and binge eating disorder are diseases, but instead a very natural but primitive brain response to restrictive dieting and the repeated overconsumption of highly stimulating foods. So you teach binge eaters how to take back control from the primitive part of their brain using their higher cognitive power to chart a path to recovery. Now, let's talk about this statement. I do not believe bulimia and binge eating disorder are diseases. I bet you get a lot of flack for that. Maybe not directly, but I bet that upsets a lot of apple carts. Am I right? I think it does. But I've also gotten a lot more support for it as well. And a lot of women and men reaching out to me and saying, you know, thank you so much for giving me a different perspective, for allowing me to take control of my life. So it's mixed. You know, people who are, Mm -hmm. do work in sort of the mainstream eating disorder therapy field. Yeah, of course it is going against that. And like I said, I don't think therapy is worthless at all. It's definitely helpful for many different problems, but for binge eating specifically, I went to therapy for binge eating. And instead I got people telling me I had to work on all these different issues that really had nothing to do with the binge eating itself. Yeah. And you had to solve what was wrong with you. And this is why I think your work was so cathartic for me is I was like, you know what, I'm happy. Uh And this is something that I don't think gets talked about very often. But when I was in sort of the deepest, darkest phases of binge eating, and everything I was reading was telling me that it's a disease and like, don't be so hard on yourself. It's a disease. I was like, okay, I understand the don't be so hard on yourself because shame is not an effective strategy like at all. But I don't understand the disease part where I don't, I found it disempowering, quite frankly. And also it puts you in this maze of trying to uncover what's wrong with you. And there have been times in my life that were stressful and dark. And so that could have made sense. But then here I am, successful, happy, as much as a human possibly can ask for. And which is not to say happy all the time, but like, a fulfilling, rich, blessed life. And I'm binge eating. I was like, now wait, what is like, what is wrong now? (laughs) And your work, when you changed the script for me, and you busted the old paradigm, and you said, it's not a disease, but a natural and primitive brain response to restrictive dieting, I was like, oh, now you have my attention. Like, this makes sense to me. 
So Catherine, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about our brains and I want to start first with the problem state so that we really paint an effective picture of this for everybody. What is that primitive brain? I call it the lizard brain. What is that primal brain doing when we are binge eating? Can you talk to us about what that looks like and what that really is? We all have a primal part of our brain that is in charge of our survival instincts. It's in charge of our habits. It's in charge of helping us basically survive in our day-to-day life, get what we need as far as eating and thirst and just regulating all our basic body systems. So let's talk about when you diet, Mm -hmm. the balance gets upset, I guess. You know, the primal brain works perfectly fine when you're eating normally and everything, the food supply is there and it drives you to eat. You know, food is pleasurable and it drives you to eat normal amounts. But when you diet, when you deprive it, suddenly in your primitive brain or your lower brain, food becomes the highest priority. And that's definitely what I experienced when I dieted. I thought about food more than I ever had in my life. It really marks food as something you absolutely need and you need to get as much of as possible. And this is Mm -hmm. leftover from ancient times when there was famine and when food was scarce and we needed this system that strongly drove us toward food so that we would do the work necessary to get food and hunt. And, you know, this is a system that is kind of wired for food scarcity. And now food is not scarce for many of us who are lucky enough to live in countries where, you know, food is not scarce. So we have this brain that's wired for food to be scarce and food is very abundant. So when our brains are telling us that we're starving and we need to get as much food as possible, then you can see how binge eating results. It's as if the primitive brain kind of takes over and just drives you to do a behavior that it senses is necessary for survival. You know, not everyone who diets ends up binging, Mm -hmm. but people who diet, even if you've never binged, you can probably still feel this primitive brain in action. You probably still have more cravings than you ever had before you dieted. You might have episodes of overeating. So, you know, it doesn't happen to everyone with the binging. There might be some different factors based on personality or genetic factors. You know, like I said, everyone is different. Everyone's susceptible to something. But still, without a diet, binging would not result. It definitely would not have resulted for me. So it's just learning that was very empowering because I was able to look back on my experience and say, wow, this was just a normal reaction by my brain. And my brain was actually trying to protect me. It wasn't like my lower brain or my primitive brain was my enemy. This was a survival response. So interesting because a lot of people think, well, I'm not starving to death, so I'm not calorically restricting. So how does this make sense to me? And an insight that we've shared recently on the show is you don't have to be calorically restricting. You're restricting, it can even just be a mindset, meaning you have legal foods and illegal foods or food types are a moral issue for you or you feel guilt or shame when you enjoy a meal or if you eat after a certain hour. And so a lot of this is not necessarily somebody sitting down and throwing back a dozen donuts at a time, but rather people approaching their relationship with food with so much like judgment attached to it. And I have found that even just that mental restriction created binge responses for me or reactionary eating or compensatory eating. So it doesn't always have to be something that you exhibit behaviorally. And I think that's really, really important because it sort of opens up the topic for a lot of people who are still sort of confused about what's happening with them. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does make sense. And I agree that restriction can be a mindset thing. It can be when you become overly rigid about what foods you're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat, the brain can react as if it's deprived calorically. I mean, it can have the same reaction. Very, very important connection to make, I think. And now I want to share one of the most important things that you said in my ear when I was reading your book. You said, when I figured out that I was binging to cope with the urge to binge, for some reason, that simple truism just set off light bulbs all over my brain because Catherine, so many people, and we touched on this, so many people are told that binge eating or binge drinking or again, whatever your habit is, that that is a coping mechanism to stress. It is a coping mechanism to emotional trauma or to something in your childhood or so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that those stressors don't make things harder. That's not, I'm not trying to whitewash that stuff away, but I just feel like you really hit the nail on the head when you said, you know what, all of that can be true, but it is actually irrelevant when it comes to solving the problem. What is relevant when it comes to solving the problem is understanding that you are binging to put out that urge to binge. Yeah, I felt like I was trying to solve that question of what am I trying to cope with for so long. That was really the core thing in therapy that I was trying to solve. Mm -hmm. What am I trying to cope with? What emotion was it this time? What thing from the past was it this time that I'm trying to cope with with this binge? You know, it could be each binge could have a different thing that I decided that was what I was coping with. And it just went roundabout for so long. And I finally came to the conclusion that I binged to cope with the urges. And it was such a huge insight for me because no matter how much stress you have, if you don't have that urge and that impulse and that drive to binge, you don't binge. No matter what happened to you in your past, if you don't have that impulse and drive to binge, you're not going to binge. So the urge came before each and every binge. It was always the only direct cause. Like you said, it doesn't mean the other stuff has absolutely no value mm -hmm. because sometimes the binging can become indirectly connected with things. Like if you get in the habit of binging after stress, then the urge can appear automatically after stress. But stress is still not the direct cause. The urge is the direct cause. So once I learned to see the urges as the direct cause of every binge, then it gave me a more practical way to approach the problem. Okay, this is so important because what we are taught is we are taught to like figure out what is the stressor that's driving you to the refrigerator, right? And really, on any given day, I can have infinite number of inputs. So I could be like, mm -hmm. wow, work stress is really stressing me out. Or wow, I've got a deadline. Or wow, I'm really excited but nervous about this thing that I'm doing. Or, oh, I just had an argument with my husband. I mean, I can have an infinite funnel of inputs that create a desire to binge. And when you sort of put up a wall between all of those stressors or catalysts. And they're, by the way, they're not always bad. I think this is really important. Sometimes people go to the refrigerator or go to their habit, whichever habit that you're plugging into this conversation today, because they're excited about something or they're nervous about something. It's not always like, you know, childhood trauma. I think it's important to say, I found myself that I was eating in transition. Just I have several different businesses. And literally when I would switch from one endeavor to another, I would go eat 
as some sort of transition. And I, so I spent, I don't know how long trying to figure that out. Like, what did that mean? (laughs) I got like all meta about it. And you were like, nope, at the end of the day, your stress or your emotional catalyst isn't picking up the fork. Like, let's just be clear. And you are binging to put out that fire that you're feeling in your lizard brain. And I'm mixing metaphors all over the place, but it is, it's like a fire that needs attention and you've got to satisfy it and you've got to put it out. And it feels like it's in control of you, but it's your lizard brain telling you to go do something. And when you can master the lizard brain or the lower brain, as you say, then all of a sudden you're in the driver's seat again. The lizard brain, it's, its job is to drive you toward behaviors that it thinks you need and also to pleasurable behaviors. So when you're feeling that urge, it feels so necessary. It feels like you have to have this thing you're desiring. And that could be, like you said, many different habits. And specifically here, we're talking about binging. So you feel like you have to have massive amounts of food to survive. And you have that urge and that feeling. And it feels so real. And it feels like if you do not satisfy it, that, you know, you might die. Like yes. It does feel that bad when you don't understand what's going on. So anyone who has that feeling would understandably want to make it go away. And the way that it went away was with binging. So that was the only way to make it go away. And that's what I mean when I say I binge to cope with the urges because the binging made the urge go away. Now, after the binge, I realized, oh my gosh, what did I do? I did it again. And there was all the shame and the guilt and sort of my true self, my rational self returned And I felt like I had to compensate for it in some way. So it's definitely a cycle. And anyone who has a bad habit can probably relate to that, that feeling that you just need to do it. And it's the lizard brain, the lower brain is a very effective part of our physiology. You know, the brain chemicals in there and the the pathways, it just works. It works. But the very important thing to know is that all the lizard brain can do is drive you toward a behavior but it cannot actually make you do it. It can encourage you. It can send out thoughts, feelings, sensations. It can really give you that drive and give you that urge. But your higher brain, our human brain, can basically veto what the lower brain is saying to do. So in my book, I talk a lot about the higher brain and the lower brain. The higher brain actually has ultimate control of your voluntary muscle movement. So regardless of what the primitive brain is encouraging you to do, you do have that self-control function in the higher brain and specifically in the prefrontal cortex. So you always maintain that ability to control your behavior. And that's something that was so important for me to learn because I learned that the lower brain was just operating based on what I had taught it to do through dieting, through this habit that sort of had inadvertently developed and created this very strong pathway. But ultimately, I did still have the choice in my higher brain to say no. And that's how I was able to break the habit. And we can get into that more if you'd like as well. Yeah, I want to talk about the brain with you. And I just want to wrap up this sentiment by sharing that you just pointing that out to me, and you pointing out to me through the power of your book and the power of your story, but you just saying this is your lower brain. It is science. (laughs) It is what happens naturally after deprivation. And now you've created a habit around it. You just making me understand that cleared up 90% of this issue for me. And let's talk about why it matters because 
I have a lot of people who nighttime snack and even say they binge at night or they overeat at night, any one of those things. And I have said to them, it's a habit. It's a response that you're creating now. But when you look at it as a habit, instead of as something is broken that you need to fix, and you just understand that you've created those ruts in your brain, then we can talk about this with a lot more objectivity. And frankly, we can deal with it a lot more efficiently. Really, at the end of the day, whatever binging you are engaging in, binge eating, binge drinking, binge shopping, whatever binging you might be engaging in, it's actually a habit that you formed by repetitive behavior. Now, can you explain what I mean when I talk about how this is just simple science and the way that our brains work? Okay, so the lower brain is in charge of our survival, like I mentioned. It's also in charge of pleasure. So anything it senses helps us survive or gives us some sort of pleasure, it basically remembers it and urges us to repeat. So once I did this behavior, once I binged for the first time, okay, yes, it gave me a lot of guilt, but there was also a pleasure in satisfying my hunger, you know, as a calorie deprived person, mm-hmm. then it got marked as a behavior that helped me survive and helped me get pleasure. So therefore it urged me to repeat it. Now, I repeated it again a week later, and then after that, and then after that, and then a habit developed. And habits are very real things in the brain. Your brain gets wired in a way that makes the behavior easier and easier to repeat. There's a saying that cells that fire together wire together. So as this behavior happened, all the neurons that helped me perform that behavior got wired together so that the behavior just started to become part of my life. It started to become something I felt consistently driven toward because the lower brain got conditioned to think I needed it and needed to repeat it often and over and over and over. So it just became this cycle. And again, in therapy, I learned that there was deep meaning to all of it, but really there wasn't. It was this habit loop that just kept repeating over and over again. And I just got caught in it and didn't understand what was going on. I think an often shared analogy is worth mentioning here. And that is, of course, when you do something over and over again, you're creating, I call them ruts in your brain, because you know, Catherine, I have my PhD in Google. So (laughs) that's about the level of science you're going to get from me. But if you are learning how to drive a car, for example, you get in the car, everything is foreign. I'm teaching my son how to drive right now. And you know, he's focused on which angle every single mirror is on for him. And the gas pedal feels like a foreign object and the steering wheel and like just the feeling of the car around you, much less the actual driving piece. Like every single thing is new to his brain and to his experience. I get in the car and I am, you know, probably putting on lip gloss and finishing a text before (laughs) I pull out of the driveway, put the phone away, I might add. And I'm driving with one eye open and like two fingers on the steering wheel, right? I'm exaggerating, but I think everybody understands the point here. Everything has developed such deep ruts in your brain that you can practically and unfortunately do it with your eyes closed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the analogy that you often hear about brain science is that when you are forming a new habit, it's like you're going down a road that's never been driven on before. It's just rough dirt. It's bumpy and, and you feel every single bump. And then when you're driving down a road you've driven down a million times before, there are deep grooves in that dirt road and the driving is smoother and easier and you can do it half consciously because you've done it so many times before. And that is where we get with these 
compensatory behavior. So when I realized that, oh, I go to the refrigerator because it is a habit that I have created around this urge, it helped me separate again and look at this more objectively, sort of at what I was doing. So Catherine, if we know this, like, what do we do about it? If that is our habit, whatever our habit may be, and in this case, binge eating, if that is our habit, what do we do about it? It's definitely a good question because when I say the higher brain controls your behavior and you can just not do it, some of you might be thinking, well, how? I mean, it feels so impossible right now. And Mm -hmm. during the time that I was experiencing these really strong urges, if someone would have said, well, you can just stop, I would have felt like, how? I mean, it might have made me angry to hear that because I didn't feel like I could. But like you said, understanding is a huge portion of it. Once you can see this habit for what it is, once you can see these urges as a primitive response, it almost immediately empowers you. It almost immediately makes them feel less threatening so that you don't feel so compelled to follow it because you can kind of step back a little and say, wait, this isn't coming from me. This is my lower brain. So that's one piece of it. Now, this is different than willpower. What I teach is it is using the power of your self-control. It is using the power of your higher brain. Willpower implies a a white knuckling experience. It implies like really trying hard to resist something. What I teach is to try to get people to detach from their urges. And what I mean by that is basically becoming an observer to your brain because our higher brain can observe what's going on in our lower brain. And if you can step back and start viewing these urges in a new way, you immediately have power over them. I have five components that I teach to help people step back and observe the lower brain. And would you like me to share those? Yeah, actually, that would be great. And of course, let me just spoiler alert, we're going to link to your resources, including a free ebook that you have for everybody. And so there will be a lot more information available. But yeah, would you please? Yeah, sure. And the free ebook does have all these five components explained in detail. So that will hopefully help you if you're struggling with this problem. But the first component is to view the urges as neurological junk. And that just means you stop giving them value. You stop giving them so much attention. When I was a binge eater, and I'm sure, Ella, you experienced this as well, when the urge comes up, you're automatically tuned into it. You're automatically paying attention to it. Whereas now you want to step back and see what's happening and see it as just junk that's coming up from your brain as it's not important. In therapy, it's given so much importance, like this means something. And in my approach, when you have the urge, you want to immediately have the attitude of it doesn't have value. It's harmless, it's powerless, and it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. The second component, and these components are the five components of dismissing urges. And dismissing is basically just detaching. It's not resisting. I used to use the word resisting, but I decided I didn't like that word. Dismissing is just kind of allowing it to pass, stepping back, allowing the urge to come and go without acting on it. So the second component of dismissing urges to binge is to separate the higher brain from the urges to binge. And that means to see that you, in your higher brain, you're not the same as the urges. The urges are a primitive response. You, in your higher brain, that's where you have your identity and your rational self, and that's where you, you know, feel like you. That's, you know, your higher brain is in charge of your goals, your reasoning. So it's to see that the lower brain is not acting 
in your best interest and you are separate and you are also capable of controlling your actions. No matter what the lower brain is telling you to do, you do not have to lift a finger to pick up the food or you do not have to take a step to the refrigerator. And again, if you can detach from the urges, it feels a lot less like willpower and like white knuckling. It feels more just like empowerment and control. It's a subtle but really important difference because willpower is bunk when it comes to this stuff. And anyone who struggles with anything will attest to that. But what you're saying is, and I love the word dismiss because for me, it actually helped to mentally think of this as a tiny little voice, you know, the lizard brain that I keep saying, but like this tiny little thing. And I almost sort of, I visualized just sort of flicking it off of my shoulder. Like it was this little voice in my ear and I just flicked it off of my shoulder. Like, you don't matter. You're not in charge of me. (laughs) You know, you're not the boss of me, Um, but it worked. And it's very, very different than white knuckling. I'm so glad that you made that point. Yeah, definitely. So the third component is to stop reacting to the urges to binge. Now, this basically means you don't get emotionally upset by them. And sometimes reactions can happen automatically. But when I had the urges in the past, and so many people share this experience, you automatically get so upset and frustrated and anxious, and you just feel like you have to act. And those reactions that you're having can make you feel more compelled to act. Other reactions that I had were trying to analyze the urge, trying to figure out why it was there, trying to figure out the stressor. There was lots of ways that I reacted to the urge. So In my approach, I try to help people minimize the reactions. And you can't completely minimize all reactions, but you can eliminate a lot of them. So it's trying to experience the urge in a very detached way. It's like when someone's arguing with you. This is an example I use in my book. If someone's making an argument and really telling you all the reasons that you're wrong, and you kind of just realize that it's not worth it to argue back. So you Mm -hmm. just kind of listen and And suddenly you're not reacting emotionally anymore. It's just you hear their words, but they don't matter to you. So that's really the goal of not reacting to urges. And when you don't react, the urge is a lot more comfortable. You don't feel so driven to make it go away because it's not as bothersome to you anymore. Now, the fourth component, which is actually the cure for binge eating, is to stop acting on the urges. (laughs) And it sounds so, you know simple. And it is simple, but it takes a lot of explaining to get there and to explain why you have the ability to stop acting, why you're not diseased, why you have this power in your brain to stop. And stop acting on urges is actually a way to change your brain because there's a well-researched concept called neuroplasticity that just basically means your brain is capable of rewiring. It's capable of forming new habits. The binge eating habit form because you repeated the behavior so many times it got wired in your brain. And now by not acting on the urges, the behavior can simply go away. The wiring that maintained the behavior can dissolve and new pathways can form. So when you don't act, every time you don't act, you're actually physiologically changing your brain, which is very exciting. And when I learned about it, it just felt, again, so empowering. I feel like I use that word a lot, but it's very important to know that you have that control to not act. And when you don't act, it actually creates change and makes the urges go away over time. Empowering is the perfect word because so many people who are lost in this feel a complete lack of control, a lack of power. They feel like something else is in charge of them. Something else is driving their behavior. You said it yourself. It wasn't me. And then it's like you woke up into your conscious self 
and you were you again. And so empowerment is everything here. When you realize that the choice is entirely yours and that you have had the control the whole time, and control is actually a dangerous word, but you have had the power the entire time. It's not where you can start with people. I understand why this is not step one. Because if you're just like, put the fork down, you're in control. Like anybody who's suffering wants to punch that sentiment in the face. And because you're like, yeah, sure, that's that's great. That's super helpful advice. But when you walk people through the process that you're describing, and it, it results in the ability to understand that this is a habit, It's a habitual response that you've created. It is a physical manifestation of something that is going on in your brain and you can rewire it. If that's not empowering, I don't know what is. Okay, so where are we in the steps? We are on component five, which I like to think of as a bonus component and it's to get excited. And that means to get excited about dismissing the urges and about recovery in general. Because like I mentioned, when you actually dismiss the urge, when you don't act on the urge, it changes your brain. And that is something to be very excited about. So every time you don't act on the urge, you can praise yourself. You can you know, do something to congratulate yourself that doesn't involve eating. And it actually has a neurological function to get excited. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with in children, if you praise them and encourage them, it actually allows them to learn better. It helps their brains absorb information. So in breaking habits, when you're excited about your success, it helps your brain change faster. It helps these pathways to rewire. So Mm -hmm. I think I was naturally excited. I don't think it's something that I had to force on myself and most people are naturally excited, but it's just to remind you to praise yourself and to get excited about making these brain changes. I totally agree. In fact, when you realize that you've had this the whole time, it is so empowering to realize that you don't have to fix anything. You don't have to remove stress from your life. You don't have to completely cut out that relationship with a family member that's tough and causes you stress, or you don't have to give your kids away, or you don't have to quit, <laughs> you don't have to quit your job. I mean, you have everything you need on your person and in that brain of yours right now. That is just, I mean, The excitement follows quite naturally. But I love, 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 love what you're doing. It's so hard to do it justice in this short time that we have together. So I want everyone to get a copy of this book if any part of this is resonating with them. I mean, honestly, it was the cheapest therapy that money can buy, Catherine. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I love getting to share these ideas. And I hope that some of you benefiting, if you are struggling with binge eating, or another destructive habit that you'll find something helpful in what we've just talked about. Well, let me remind everybody what we're going to share with them. We're going to give everyone a free copy of your ebook. So the link to that will be in the show notes. Absolutely. I'm going to link to your two books, Brain Over Binge, and then the Brain Over Binge Recovery Guide, as well as your online coaching program. I want to share every single thing that you're doing, Catherine, and I hope you can help as many people as humanly possible. Well, thank you so much, Ella. Thank you. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.